Before we get started with this episode of Walking with Dante, let me just say that this podcast has gone on for three years, more than three years. In fact, I never intended this podcast to overtake my life, but it has. I'd like to ask for a little help. I have a great deal of costs associated with this podcast, including fees to join scholarly journals to get library access, including hosting fees, streaming fees. I have to buy the copyrights to the music, the sound effects, and I have to put the thing up and let it live somewhere. So I have to pay for those services too. All of that has eaten into the budget, and I have turned down sponsors in favor of asking for your help. So before we get started, let me just tell you that there is a PayPal link both in the show player itself and in the notes to this podcast. If you would like to donate to this podcast and support it, that would be terrific. Even if you don't, I'm still going to continue on this passion project. I'm simply asking for a little help for something that I had no intention of overwhelming my life onto the episode. Hey there, I'm Mark Skerber, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that, as you well know, has walked all the way to the eighth canto of Purgatorio. We are making our slow progression across the known universe with Dante and his guide Virgil and his other guide, Sordelo. You might be just dropping in here to the podcast. Wow, we have come quite a ways all the way through Inferno and up to this moment. You might want to go back and see how we got here, but you can start here. We're at the opening lines of Canto 8, as I said, 1 through 18. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can also read along and even more. You can drop comments and continue the conversation with me about this episode in Canto 8, a very difficult canto, at least in my estimation, in the middle canticle of Dante's great masterwork, comedy. It was already the hour that turns the desire of sailors homeward and melts their hearts even on the very day they say adieu to their sweet friends, and the hour that pricks the new pilgrim's heart with love, especially if he or she hears a far-off bell that seems to cry out in sorrow for the dying day. I started to rely less on my hearing and instead focused my eyes on one of the souls who rose up and gestured with his hand for us to pay attention. He joined his palms and lifted them up, fixing his eyes onto the east as if he were saying to God, I don't care about anything else. The hymn, Te Lucis Ante, came out of his mouth with such devotion and with such sweet notes as well that I, from me, was made to move away as if in ecstasy. Then, so sweetly and devotedly, the others followed him all the way through the rest of that song, keeping their eyes fixed on the wheeling heavens above. 
gorgeous passage, really gorgeous. If you don't remember where we are or need a quick refresher, we are standing on the lip of a dale. It is the valley of the, dare we say, negligent rulers. We talked about this last time, why that may or may not be the case. I'm taking it as the case. These are all the negligent rulers, all the way from emperors to marquis, who shirked their heavenly duties for earthly gain and usually for what we assume to be uh, what do we want to say for good goals at least according to Dante I'm stumbling on that because these guys weren't all so great at least in my estimation but I guess in Dante's estimation they were headed on the right path politically or at least in warfare but perhaps not totally secure in their Christian devotion we have now come to the moment in which one of these stands up we have a hymn the third hymn of Purgatorio. We want to talk about this opening six lines, almost impossible to render into English. And then we want to talk a little bit about this whole problem of ecstasy and the heavens above us. Let's start right at the top of the passage at line one. It was already the hour that turns the desire of sailors homeward and melts their hearts even on the very day they say adieu to their sweet friends, and the hour that pricks the new pilgrim's heart with love, especially if he or she hears a far-off bell that seems to cry out in sorrow for the dying day. Let me make one translation note here. The line is not adieu in the medieval Florentine, as you can imagine. It is the same as adieu in French, which is to God. But I didn't want to put arrivederci here, and I didn't want to put goodbye. It didn't seem right, because the line in the Florentine is, even on the very day they say, to God, to their sweet friends. So I gave it the French translation. It's not really right, and I apologize for that. But it was the closest I could come in English to what I wanted to say. These six lines, this opening of Canto 8, they may be the most famous and even the most evocative opening lines of any canto in all of comedy. Anyone who reads comedy pauses on this opening pseudo-simile. It's not exactly a simile, although it functions like that in the text. These lines are so well known. They were even cribbed by the likes of Lord Byron in Book 3 of Don Juan. They are unbelievably resonant, evocative, emotional. We should note that Canto 8 starts in an emotional place. I mean, here's the sailors, and they've sailed off maybe on their first day out from land, and they've just said adieu to their sweet friends, but they feel that longing. And here's this pilgrim who started on pilgrimage, I don't know where, but started out on some sort of pilgrimage, and here's that evening bell ring and thinks, oh man, back home they're sitting down to dinner or they're going to bed. It's the last of the day as it dies off. It has this beautiful sadness about it. And dying day is correct for the Florentine. Canto 8 is our last canto in Ante Purgatory. These cantos that happen before the main official gate of Purgatory. And Canto 8 is going to sum up a lot of what has happened in Ante Purgatory. And in fact, it's going to be very difficult to watch it sum it up because the layering is going to get very thick in Canto 8. But right here we can see the two major 
themes running right under us. The water exodus sailor experience. And dare I say it, Ulysses. Remember, Ulysses does occur in Purgatorio. In Canto 1 of Purgatorio, we have a direct reference back to Ulysses from Inferno, and we have rhyme schemes that are the same as those in Inferno. So Ulysses is occurring early on in this journey to Mount Purgatory, and then in Canto 2 at line 63, we get the first mention of someone on a pilgrimage. These two images, the sailor, the sea, the exodus, the water, even Ulysses in the background and pilgrimage are the two most important images for anti-purgatory. And they seem to be summed up here in these opening lines. And let me say just a little bit more about these opening lines because they're really crucial to understand. Again, I just want to repeat that there is no way the English is ever going to come close to how beautiful the Florentine is here with these beautiful, evocative sounds. The rhyme is really beautiful. It's very mellifluous in the Florentine. It is such great poetry at its core. But let me say something about this bell that's ringing at the dying of the day. This is the bell for Compline, the last bell ringing of the day, post-Vespers. Sometimes some in uh, the U.S., some people say Compline or Compline, the last bell ringing of the day. What is really important, and this is important for us next time, and I just want to bring it up here, it's the last canonical hour of the day. So the day goes forward in this very Christian territory by the ringing of bells, matins, noan, vespers, compline, and more. And the bells ring over the course of the day. And this is the end of the canonical or the liturgical day. Night is setting in, and we won't hear the bells again until early in the morning in a medieval context. We're moving out of liturgical or canonical time and into just ordinary time. But we'll talk more about that in the next episode ahead of us. Let's just say again how beautiful these opening lines are. This sailor melted heart thinking back to home and his friends, this pilgrim setting off and thinking of his home, and it's all wrapped up in death. It maybe has a little edge of nostalgia to it. Um, Robert Hollander is very adamant that there is no nostalgia here and that that's the point. I'm not sure there's no nostalgia here. What I am sure is that there's sadness. There's yearning. And that's another way that Canto 8 starts to wrap up anti-purgatory, these first eight cantos of Purgatorio, this yearning for something. We have these souls begging to be prayed out of their current position, yearning to move on up the mountain, thinking back toward their terrestrial lives. We have a lot of turned back souls like Manfred turning back toward Constance, his daughter, have her pray for me. In the same way here, we have pilgrims looking back or thinking back and sailors looking back, thinking about this yearning for what was. It is a thematic of the opening cantos of Purgatorio. And just think about that for a minute. 
you're in the afterlife, but <laughs> but you're still kind of turned back toward the terrestrial. That's how sweet this life could possibly be, that even on your road to the heavens, you could still be yearning for life among the living. The passage moves on. I started to rely less on my hearing and instead focus my eyes on one of the souls. Let me just stop here because we'll get to one of the souls in a minute. There's a little bit of irony here, and it's going to actually play out ahead of us in the canto, just as the canonical time is going to play out ahead of us in the canto. There's a little bit of irony here that he's going to rely less on his hearing and instead focus his eyes. Well, just think about this for a minute. The day is ending. It's getting dark. Hearing actually is your more acute sense at this point because the light is fading. I think now Dante would like to nudge us a little with a smile. Did I think that he wanted to nudge me with big-nosed Charles of Anjou? No, I don't. But here, I think a little bit of a nudge, a smile, because listen, the light is fading out. Dude, don't rely on your sight. Think more about your hearing, but he seems to rely more fully on his sight at this moment. This will become really ironic and much more important to us as the canto moves forward, but I just want to point it out here. One of these guys stands up. One of the souls rises up. We assume it's a guy because we've only seen men in this dale. But one of the souls, this guy rises up and gestures with his hand for us to pay attention. We have no clue who this is. There is a lot of critical ink spilled on who this is. Is it one of the figures we're about to meet in the canto? A lot of people want to become very involved in, oh, this has got to be Emperor Rudolph or... <laughs> oh, this has got to be Pedro the Third. Honestly, why? Dante leaves it open-ended, and Dante doesn't leave it with a clue that would allow us to identify this figure, and maybe that's the point. Maybe that is the darkening irony, that you can't actually pick out the individual characteristics of this fellow, even though just previously in Cato 7, we were picking out a lot of physical characteristics. Maybe that's Dante's, n- n- I hate to use this word, it's sticking, you can hear me stick and not be able to say it. Maybe this is Dante using naturalistic detail. Ugh, I hate using that word. Naturalistic is such a 19th and 20th century word for a medieval poem, but maybe it is. That Dante is pointing out to us that features are becoming uh, smudged, blurred, not exactly uh, visible, which is funny that he's relying more on his eyes then. I would just say, leave it. Leave it as an ambiguity. Somebody stands up. He joins his palm, he lifts them up, he fixes his eyes on the east, as if he were saying to God, I don't care about anything else. This is really important because the sun is setting, obviously, in the west, and this guy is facing east. We are already anticipating dawn or sunrise with this figure, even though we're at sunset. That is really important to the theology, and if you don't want it to be theology, the moral allegory of Purgatorio. Even in the face of death, you face toward the light, or you hope for the light, or you yearn for the light that is yet to come. Don't forget that in Dante's day, cathedrals are laid out so that they face east, so the congregation is facing east. It's thought, especially in medieval theology, that Jesus will come 
in the East. I don't quite know how that works on a global scale, but all right, let's have it. What's happening here is that we have this darkening day, the end of the day, and yet somebody is already turned toward the sunrise, which is Dante's comedy, his hope, his hope for the resurrection, his hope for a life to come, his hope for, you don't have to put this in Christian terms, let me put it in other terms, his hope for another day. And I believe that's really important, so much so that this figure is given an imaginary line of dialogue, as if he were saying to God, I don't care about anything else. We don't know that he actually says that line. Instead, it's an imagined line. The yearning is so deep that I know what he's thinking just by looking at him. And what he's thinking is a hymn. <laughs> Te Lucis Ante. We want to talk about this. It comes out of his mouth with such devotion, with such sweet notes as well, that I, for me, was made to move away as if in ecstasy. I'm going to get to why that line is so awkward in my English translation next. But let's just focus for a minute on this great hymn. This is a hymn usually attributed to St. Ambrose, maybe not, but usually so attributed. And it is, especially in the Middle Ages, often sung at Compline at the very end of the day, the last of the liturgical hours. We have Latin inside the medieval Florentine, just as we did with Salve Regina, and just as we did with the first hymn in Purgatorio. We'll come back to those three hymns in a minute. These Latin words do jump off the page because we're running in the vernacular. I'm not going to read it to you in Latin, but let me read it to you in English. Before the ending of the day, creator of the world, we pray that, with thy wonted favor, thou wouldst be our guard and keeper now. From all ill dreams defend our eyes, from nightly fears and fantasies, tread underfoot our ghostly foe, that no pollution we may know. O Father, that we ask be done through Jesus Christ, thine only Son, who with the Holy Ghost in thee doth live and reign eternally. What I'd like to focus on is not the ending of the day, we've talked about that, but that middle stanza, from all ill dreams defend our eyes. This will become incredibly important to what's ahead in this canto. From nightly fears and fantasies, from night terrors, this is important in the canto ahead. Tread underfoot, most important of all, our ghostly foe, that no pollution we may know. And you should know that in the Middle Ages, this line of the hymn, No Pollution We Will Know, has a sexual overtone about it. This will also play out in the canto as we find a very sexualized beast enter this dale of the negligent rulers and as we hear about sexual infidelities back amongst the living. Let's keep that up in our head. It's going to be important to what's ahead of us in the canto. I'm bringing it up here so you kind of get the context and I'll remind you when we get to the parts that seem to resonate with this hymn. And it seems like in this passage that we're reading, Dante really wants us to understand that the whole hymn is sung, which means we should then be paying attention to the words of the whole thing, not just the opening few words, you know, before the ending of the day, te lucis ante terminum. 
just to bring it up here and now, let's say that this is the third hymn or antiphon of Purgatorio. And I just want to go down through the list and remind you of them. The first was in Canto 2, and that's when the souls in the boat driven by the angel arrive singing that out of Egypt song, Israel exiting from Egypt. That's in Canto 2, line 46. And then in the last canto of Canto 7, we had the kings, the negligent rulers and marquises and others singing Salve Regina, which we talked about, again, has an Exodus thematic to it. And now here we have this hymn. So, so far in Purgatorio, we've had three major medieval hymns or antiphons. And I think that's really important to note. A, the symbolism of three before the gate of Purgatory, and B, to note their order. We have this song to be sung to come up out of Egypt. We have then the Save Us Mary, Salve Regina, which is told from the position of someone in exile, bring us into the promised land. And now we have yet one more plea, keep us from corruption and trod our nightly foes underfoot. It seems like there's a development there that is life in exile involves passing through the waters onto dry land. It involves calling out for help in exile, and it involves the plea that your terrors and your fears be put to rest in exile. That motion amongst the hymns seems as if it looks like, well, it does look like narrative development to my eyes. And furthermore, three and we can't miss the Trinitarian symbolism of three in the Christian theological schematic. Let me go on to that really odd line that I translated so awkwardly. He sang so sweet, such sweet notes that I from me was made to move away as if in ecstasy. (laughs) It's terrible in English. I'm sorry. It is a gorgeous line in the Florentine. Here it is. Que fece me a mi that made me from me exit from my mind or exit out of my mind. That usciutimente, that exit out of my mind, according to Singleton, has a, an ecstatic kind of response, even sexual ecstatic experience. And I think that's important to see here in this passage because there's a there's a callback here. Remember when Casela gets out of that boat with all of the pilgrims that the angel is driving across the water to purgatory and Casela then starts to sing one of Dante's songs and Dante pauses and seems to forget why he's here and Cato has to appear out of the blue and shoo him away. You'll note that a similar thing happens here. Dante is called out of himself, but this time no one shoos him away. In fact, this time something really dramatic is going to happen in the next episode. I hate to keep saying this, I'm sorry, but in the next episode, something really dramatic is going to happen. And there are two different responses here. It seems as if the pausing and listening to Casella sing one of Dante's own poems, uh, that requires a bit of, come on, get out of yourself, get over yourself. Well, I guess he is out of himself. Get over yourself and move on with the journey. This moment of ecstasy in which I am separated from me, this moment seems much more solemn, sacred. There's no warning that this isn't the right thing to do, at least in my reading of the text. There may be a quibble in the next passage, but as far as I'm concerned, 
This is a correct ecstatic moment. We should just stop for a moment and talk about this. I just heard a concert that my husband sang this last weekend of Baroque music, and they did this giant chorus from a Bach cantata, and it was crazy. I, I sat there in the audience with tears running down my face, and I was clearly having a personal ecstatic moment of the beautiful artistry of this giant Bach fugue. I have the same reaction. I probably told you this. When I walk into the Uffizi with the room of the Botticelli's, the minute I walk into that room in the Uffizi in Florence, I start crying. Dante is clearly onto something here. It's not that the religious experience or the artistic experience dissolves the self. It's that it divides the self and maybe even mm, the sexual experience creates two me's. There's a me that is elevated and there is a me that is still hearing it, still experiencing it, still feeling it. There's a me that is corporeal and a me that is seemingly lifted, let's say lifted above. I don't want to make that a moral judgment, but lifted above the corporeal experience. I still need all my senses to have an aesthetic, religious, sexual. I still need all my senses to have those ecstatic experiences. And yet at the same time, they lift me out or beyond those senses. Dante is on to something about the human response to beauty, to holiness, to sacredness, to something that is so profound that it doesn't actually void you, which is how many ascetic monks would take it. Instead, it divides you. Think about that for a minute. It's really important to consider. And finally, the last little bit of the passage. Then so sweetly and devotedly, the others followed this guy who was singing all the way through the rest of that song. See, Dante really wants you to pay attention to the words of that hymn. Keeping their eyes fixed on the wheeling heavens above. This is the first time we are fully aware of where we're headed. We're looking up at the stars. And remember, Dante lives in a fixed Earth universe. Even the sun is rotating around the Earth, although Dante does know the Earth is a globe, as we have discussed endlessly. But it's a fixed Earth universe, so the heavens are turning, and those wheeling heavens above us are where we're headed in this poem. We get a glimpse beyond Mount Purgatory, and (laughs) you know I'm going to do this. The passage begins with perhaps a glimpse of a redeemed, Ulysses. Ulysses, remember, sails across the globe, sees Mount Purgatory, and goes down in the whirlpool in Inferno. This redeemed vision of Ulysses at the start of Canto 8 is of a sailor who yearns for home but carries on. Well, Ulysses saw what was ahead for us, Mount Purgatory, and now here at the Last bit of our passage in Canto 8, we see what's ahead of us, the wheeling heavens above and ahead for all the souls standing here. They're all heading up to those spheres that are turning above. 
One more time. Here's the passage in my English translation. Purgatorio, Canto 8, lines 1 through 18. It was already the hour that turns the desire of sailors homeward and melts their hearts, even on the very day they say adieu to their sweet friends, and the hour that pricks the new pilgrim's heart with love, especially if he or she hears a far-off bell that seems to cry out in sorrow for the dying day. I started to rely less on my hearing and instead focused my eyes on one of the souls who rose up and gestured with his hand for us to pay attention. He joined his palm and lifted them up, fixing his eyes on the east as if he were saying to God, I don't care about anything else. The hymn, Te Lucisante, came out of his mouth with such devotion and with such sweet notes as well that I from me was made to move away as if in ecstasy. Then so sweetly and devotedly the others followed him all the way through the rest of that song, keeping their eyes fixed on the wheeling heavens above. When I first read comedy the first time, way back when I was just a baby medievalist in grad school and I read comedy for the first time, Purgatorio was my favorite part. I will tell you, oh, here's something, that Paradiso is my current favorite part of comedy. But for now, I'll tell you that when I first read comedy, this was it. It's so human. It's gray. It's looking back and looking ahead. It's yearning for a terrestrial life, but looking for something beyond the terrestrial life. It is such human aspiration throughout. And I think you can see that in this passage, as well as the ones ahead of us. And to get there, you should subscribe to this podcast, please. And even better, you should rate it, please, with a star rating. Dare I ask for five of them? That would be lovely. And if you would, write a review. Even something as simple as nice podcast. That is a fantastic way to support this work and keep it current in the algorithms. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for interacting with me on the various social media channels. Let's keep walking in Purgatorio Canto 8. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.